Vayetze. It says, Vayetze Yaakov. Yaakov departed from Be'er Sheva and he went to Haran. So we know that last week, um, his brother Esav was very angry after the incident with the blessings, the taking of the blessings. And his mother, uh, who was orchestrating this whole, uh, this whole, the whole affair, she uh, went to his father and said, it's so terrible that Esav married women from Canaan. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you sent Yaakov to go marry someone from Haran, from my family, our family, Abraham's family? So uh, he says, great idea. And he calls his son and he blesses him and he sends him to go. says that <clears throat> he went to Haran and we know that when he gets to Haran, his uncle Lavan hugs him. And they say, why is he hugging him? They say, you got to be careful. He's patting him down. He's looking for the gold. He's looking for the silver. He's looking for the jewelry. He's looking for the diamonds. When he can't find that, he kisses him. He says, maybe he's hiding it. He says, how is it possible that Yaakov Avinu goes to Haran to find a wife? His father and his mother sent him. He's not a kid. He's already, I think, 70 by this 63. point. 63 when he leaves, and then 70. He learned for 14 years. So this is, how could he have nothing? They matured late those days. <laughs> <laughs> so the Gemara says, Rav Shmuel Bar Nachman says, we say, uh, we say in Tehillim, Shira Malot Esa Enai El Heharim. And how we translate it says, I raise my eyes to the mountains, El Heharim, to the mountains. Me'ayin Yavo Isri, from where will help come? Says the Gemara, don't read Harim, read Horim. What's Horim? Parents. It says, I raise my eyes to my parents, it's a play on words, and he says, where am I going to get help? So the Gemara explains, when Eliezer went, so we know two weeks ago, we read, that Abraham sent Eliezer, his servant, to go find a wife, Yitzchak. When Eliezer goes to find a wife, he has with him ten camels, he has servants, he has gold, he has silver, he has jewelry, he has gifts, he has clothing, he has food, he has everything. And he says, now I'm coming and I have nothing. My parents went, they sent everything for my father. I'm coming with nothing. Where will help come from? Help will come from Hashem. So the Gemara says a person should never lose hope. Rather, a person should know, even in a dire situation, Hashem, help is going to come from Hashem. It says, Lo yanum velo yishan. Hashem doesn't falter, He doesn't sleep. He says, yishan, uh, And Hashem is going to protect you from evil, etc., etc., Says, so, so he says that, that this is the answer the Gemara gives. But to go a little further, the Midrash, they don't address the fact how is it possible that Yitzchak Avinu would send his son with nothing? Remember, Yitzchak Avinu at this time, we remember from he was negotiating with uh, the, the king Avimelech, he was probably the wealthiest man in the whole country, by far. People all came to him, they, and all because of his wealth. So he's the wealthiest guy in the country, and he sends his son to go find a wife. 
and he sends him with nothing. Kid, get out. Go. F- impossible. So what happened? <clears throat> says it's inconceivable. The rabbis all say it's inconceivable. Rashi gives the answer. Rashi comments because it says when Yaakov gets to Haran, he sees the shepherds are all waiting by the well and he's going to help them with the well. And he asks them, do you know Lavan? And they say, of course we know Lavan. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep to water the sheep. So he sees her, it's his cousin, he kisses her, and then he cries. Rashi says, why does he cry? There are no shuman again those days. And I think that, remember, if she went out to take the sheep, she must have been a little kid, because you wouldn't send out an older girl, so she must have been 11 <laughs> when he sent her. That's why he had to wait seven years to marry her. I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer. True. So he says, <clears throat> why did he cry? So Rashi brings the first answer. He says, because he knows he's going to marry her, but he's not going to be buried with her. Okay, it's hard to think of. In the end, she gets buried in Kever Rachel, and he gets buried with Le'ah in Marat HaMachbelah. This is the second answer Rashi brings. And he says, because when Eliezer went, which we mentioned a minute ago, he went with all of the ten camels, etc., etc., and he's coming with nothing. Rashi says, what do you mean? How is it possible that his father sent him with nothing? He says, no, no, no. His father certainly sent him with plenty. But he tells a story, Rashi, what happened. He says, on his way, he was stopped by his nephew, Eliphaz. And Eliphaz had a band of men. And they were on a mission. Who's Eliphaz? Eliphaz is the son of Esav, his brother. And Eliphaz is also the father of Amalek. So this guy is sandwiched in between very bad news. If we say that Esav is on one level, like the level of the Satan, and Amalek is as bad as you can get, he's in the middle of both. He's the son of one and the father of the other. And his father makes him swear that he's going to go and kill Yaakov. He says, he's leaving the house, go find him, kill him. He can't find him for 14 years, because where was he? He was hiding in the yeshiva. And when someone was in the yeshiva, you can't find the guy. Everyone looks the same. No, I don't know. <laughs> so you can't find the guy. Says, but he leaves the yeshiva, and he definitely has things that he's taking with him. And he comes and he attacks Yaakov. Says to Yaakov, I'm sorry, uncle, but... I need to kill you. I promised my father that I would kill you. And I have to respect my father. Now, the interesting thing is, Rabbi Fari says, and a lot of other people say, it's absolutely ludicrous. What do you mean? I have to respect my father so I'm going to kill someone? Imagine my father told me to go kill someone. Do I have to listen to him? doesn't make sense. He says, but... He comes and he tells Yaakov, I have to kill you because my father sent me and I have to listen to what my father said. So I'm going to kill you. Yaakov says, you know, Eliphaz, I know you're a good guy. Deep down, I know you're a good guy. You were raised in my father's house, meaning Yitzchak's house. You sat on his lap. He taught you. So no matter what you got from Esav, there's something in you. He says, let me tell you something. 
how you could satisfy both opinions. What? Just tell him, what are you, nuts? No, he says no. You're going to satisfy your father's opinion, your father's request to kill me, but you're going to leave me alive. He says, how, uncle? He says, someone who is in need to the point that he's so poor that he doesn't have even a shirt on his back, he's considered as if he's dead because he's reliant on everyone in the world and he's like nothing. So take everything I have, including the shirt on my back, and he leaves him completely stripped with nothing. Says the Midrash that what happened is he found a dead, a dead soldier, Yaakov, later on, and he took the clothing from the, from the dead soldier. Well, is this Rashi? Rashi tells the story of... How did they get this story? Which one? Rashi takes the story from, uh, from, the, from the Midrash. Midrash. Yeah. So now we have this guy, Eliphaz, and basically he robbed his uncle, and his uncle has nothing. So the rabbis want to understand why. Why did Hashem orchestrate it so that Yaakov would have nothing? Eliezer, he makes a miracle, he shortens the journey. Even with Yaakov, he seems to shorten the journey because one day he's taking a step into Haran and the next day he said, oh, I forgot to stop in Jerusalem. He turns back and, you know, whoops, Star Trek, beam me, me back and he, he, gets, he gets to Jerusalem. <coughs> so there's two questions really. What is going on with this guy Eliphaz? How do we look at Eliphaz? Do we look at him as some looney tune? that he thinks respecting a parent is more important than killing, and he's willing to kill, and Yaakov doesn't just turn to him and says, my nephew who learned from my father, you know it's a sin to kill even if your father told you to kill. He doesn't say that. He says, let me help you satisfy respecting your father and keeping me alive. And what would you do to him? He stole all of everything he had. How would you treat him? How would we treat him in history? How would we judge him? Would we judge him as a wicked person or as a good person? He took the lesser of two evils. He took everything he had. So what would we do to a thief who took everything he had? Give him a reward? That's one question. And the second question is, why does Hashem cause Yaakov Avinu to become completely, completely destitute to the point where he has nothing, not even a shirt on his back? So we learn from here that every test that the Avot went through is, 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 a, is, is related to how their children will survive that test later on. It says that Yaakov began his life with poverty. He grew up as the grandson of Abraham, who was the richest man, who gave everything to Yitzchak, who became the richest man who became much, much wealthier. It says that he earned a thousand times uh, investment in a year. And everything he touched turned to gold. So here's a kid who grew up with as silver a spoon as you can get. It was gold, the spoon, and probably had diamonds on the outside, right? And now he's subject to complete poverty. I say, why? What did he do? What did he do to be subject to such poverty? So the rabbis tell us, that Yaakov would endure the ordeal of poverty and he would show that he has faith only in Hashem and no one else. And this paved the way for any of his descendants who found themselves in a position of poverty 
to overcome that poverty. Yaakov gets married to the Imahot, to Leah and to Rachel. And he's, it's the foundation of the Jewish people, but it begins with Yaakov being penniless. Despite being destitute, Yaakov Avinu finds strength in his faith in Hashem. And he says, Chas v'shalom, I should not lose hope in my Creator. We see, therefore, that he establishes that even when a person is needing, he can have emunah bitachon, and all the generations of Israel will survive with emunah bitachon. The Kitab Sofer says, Although Hashem subjected Yaakov to the ordeal of poverty on his way to Haran, nevertheless, after he gets to Haran, what happens? He works seven years, he has nothing. He works another seven years, he has nothing. And then he makes a deal, and he starts to work for the last six years, and he makes everything. Everything he touches turns to gold. So he says that in Haran he became tremendously wealthy. And the Pasuk says, Ufros ha'ish me'od me'od, the, the man prospered exceedingly, me'od me'od, double. Right? Vahilo, and he had son, rabot, he had many, many sheep, shifachot, maidservants, avadim, servants, gemalim, camels, chamorim, donkeys. He has all of these things. He explains the significance of the tefillah that Yaakov uttered on the way to Haran. So after he has the dream, when he's laying, you know, he's laying on the mound, he has a dream. It says, Vaidor Yaakov neder. Yaakov swore a vow, and he said, Im Elokim imadi, if God will be with me, Ushmarin, and he will watch me on the way on which I am going, and he gives me lechem lechol, bread to eat, ubeged lilbosh, and clothing to wear, veshavti beshalom, and I return in peace el bet avi, veayah Hashem li lelokim. He says, if God takes care of me, gives me the minimum, food to eat, clothing to wear, then God will be my God. So what does a Ketav Sofer say? He says, there are two types of ordeals that people have to go through in their lives. The first ordeal is the ordeal of poverty. If a person lives in misery, penniless, he says he's likely to rebel against Hashem. He'll steal, he'll become corrupt, he'll criticize Hashem. He says the second test is the test of wealth. In this scenario, a person is liable to become haughty. He'll forget Hashem, he'll forget his maker, He'll take all the credit for his own success. He says, Yaakov withstood both ordeals. Initially, he left his parents' home and he became penniless and destitute. Nevertheless, he remained truthful and faithful in his emunah and his bitachon Hashem. But when he returns from Lavan's house, he possesses great wealth, abundant property, possessions. Still, his emunah and belief in Hashem is unchanged. This is reflected, he says, in the prayer that Yaakov made. If Hashem will be with me and he will guard me on this way that I am going, what is he saying? In other words, now he says, I'm embarking on a path that now I'm poor. I have nothing. I have trust and faith in Hashem. He's going to take care of me. And when eventually Hashem will give me on this path wealth, even though he's going to give me wealth, 
And the natural reaction may be to someone who becomes so, so wealthy to forget Hashem, I will still be connected to God. He's making a pledge that in poverty and in wealth, I'm going to be connected. He saw that he was going to become affluent. And he saw he was going to be, it's interesting the term he uses, subjected to wealth, as if it's a curse. Nevertheless, I will return in peace to my father's house and Hashem will be a God to me. This is based on the Gemara and Chulin. It says in the Gemara and Chulin, <coughs> according to the Pasuk, the sun rose for him. It says the sun rose for Yaakov Avinu. Is it possible, the rabbis ask, that the sun rose only for Yaakov and not for the rest of the world? Of course the sun rose for everybody. So what does it mean the sun rose for him? Rabbi Yitzchak answers that the sun that had set prematurely on his behalf now rose prematurely on his behalf. What does he explain the Gemara? When Hashem had prepared the way for all of Israel, B'nai Yaakov, to withstand the ordeal of poverty just as Yaakov had, even when the sun of their success sets upon them, similarly Hashem had the sun rise miraculously for him subsequently on his return from Lavan. This alludes to the trial of wealth. Here Hashem made preparations for all future generations of B'nai Israel to not only handle the ordeal of poverty, but to overcome with the emunah and faith the ordeal of wealth. <clears throat> the Kitav Sofer in Parshat Mishpatim, citing his father, the Khatam Sofer, brings a proof in the conclusion of the Mishnah Avot. He says, Kol et Everyone who fulfills the Torah in a state of poverty is destined to fulfill the precepts in a state of wealth. Unbelievable. He's saying this Mishnah indicates that Hashem first tests a person with poverty. Because poverty is the easier test to overcome. Because when you don't have, you can turn to stealing, you can turn to being dishonest, you can turn to hating God. But most people say, please God help me. So you stay somewhat connected. He says, if he passes this test of poverty, then he gets the next test. It's just like school. If you pass first grade, you get second grade. First grade is poverty. Second grade is wealth. He says, that's the test. He says, Kol et HaTorah me'oni. Anyone who fulfills the Torah in poverty, in the end, he's going to be tested with wealth. So we see here, he tested Yaakov Avinu, the father of the Jewish people, with two tests. When Yaakov fled from his brother Esav, Eliphaz pursued him and he confiscated all his belongings, making him a pauper. Nevertheless, Yaakov did not complain and remained uh, faithful to Hashem. Subsequently, he becomes very wealthy in the house of Lavan. Nevertheless, he remains faithful in Hashem. The Sifat Emet also expresses the same idea. He says there is an ordeal of poverty and of wealth. And he quotes again the same. Whoever fulfills the, the, in poverty will eventually have wealth. Ramban also says the same thing. He says based on the Midrash Tanhuma, he says that 
that it plays a vital role throughout the parashiyot involving Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. He says, we have to remember, whatever happens to the fathers is a sign for what will happen to their descendants. Therefore, the Torah depicts at length their journeys, the digging of wells, all the other events. He says, now we can understand why Hashem arranged for Yaakov to first experience poverty and then the ordeal of wealth both of which he passed with flying colors. These ordeals represented examples of Ma'aseh Avot Siman Lamanim. The events Yaakov endured paved the way for all of Bnei Israel throughout the generations. By adhering to and emulating the Kedushah of Yaakov Avinu, his children would also successfully withstand the trials of poverty and the trials of wealth. One of the interesting things I saw, and Rabbi Sachs actually writes this week, he says, why do we quote in the Haggadah, <coughs> we say, Arami Oved Avi. This is from the Bikurim. We say, Arami Oved Avi. Who's Arami Oved Avi? My, my father worked for Laban. Laban is called the Arami. Betuel is called the Arami. So Laban's the Arami. And he says that Paro tried to kill the boys, but Laban wanted to kill everyone. And why do we bring this up in the Seder when it really has nothing to do with the Seder? It really has to do with Bikurim. It has nothing to do. He says something very interesting. He says it's possible that we have to look at the whole life of Yaakov going to the house of Lavan as a mini going to Egypt and coming out of Egypt. He says because when, uh, when Yaakov eventually goes to Egypt, that's the actual beginning of the, of the exile towards the Exodus. He says, but now we see Yaakov goes to Laban. He has nothing. He becomes a slave. He's working for him seven years for one wife. Seven, he has nothing, owns nothing. He's completely dependent on him. And then what happens? He leaves Berechush Gadol with tremendous property. And in the whole case, with the nothing and with the, a lot, he stays faithful to Hashem. We, so, so he brings based again a, 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 from the Ramban, he says again this, this ordeal of poverty engaging in Torah study during Galut will ultimately, the person who does that will be privileged to have Torah in wealth. Again, the, again just repeating the same idea from different people. It says, furthermore, this message is conveyed to Yaakov in the dream. Vehine Sulam, we see there's a ladder and it's going from the ground from the from from the ground up to heaven. This represents an allusion to the ordeal of poverty when a man is bound by earthly limitations. And the head of the ladder reaches to heaven. He says this represents an allusion to the ordeal of wealth. And the angels of God are going up and down. He says, this alludes to the fact that Hashem sends angels to take people up and down the rungs, the ladder of poverty to wealth and wealth to poverty. Nevertheless, in both scenarios, Hashem Hashem is always looking down to watch over the Jewish people, whatever state they find themselves. Now let's try to understand this person, Eliphaz. On the one hand, he's the eldest son of Esav. He's like we said, the father of Amalek. He says, yet he himself, in some way, stood, even though he stands between these two 
you know, the, the two sets of evil. He says, he refuses to kill Yaakov per his father's command. So even though he wants to fulfill his father's command, then you look at it, he must have been, it must have been so ingrained in him the importance of filling, fulfilling a father's command. We see that Esav, that Esav, that, that his relationship with Yitzchak was because he really showed him that he respected him. Whether he was lying, whether he was asking him questions that were fake, he did all of this to bring himself close to his father, not to his mother, but to his father. His mother knew who he was, and she really didn't want to have anything to do with him. She grew up in the house of Lavan and Betuel. She knew tricksters. She knew how to sketch. She knew how to do anything you want. And she knew what her son was all about. And also perhaps because his father controlled the wealth. So if he's nice to daddy, he gets the inheritance. It says, but he showed respect because we see that when Yaakov Avinu is coming back next week, one of the things that he's afraid of when he's going to meet Esav is that Esav has possibly the zechut, the, the merit that he was with their parents for 22 years while he was away. So while he was respecting their parents, he wasn't. So we see that Esav has, no matter what we say about him, there's some aspect of tremendous, at least showing of respect. So if, if Eliphaz is growing up in his father's house, on the one hand, murder, <laughs> that comes easy. Esab kills his first person at the age of 13. He kills Nimrod at 13. Okay? Murder comes very, very easy to Esav. And it comes very easy, we, we see, to, the, to his descendants, to Amalek. It says, Amalek, what did they really do when they attacked the Israel? They went to murder them when they left Egypt. And who did they go to murder? The stragglers, the women, the children, the weak. They have no conscience. Murder. So he grows up in a society or in a house where it's, life has very little value, but respecting a parent has tremendous value. So on the one hand, you say he's, he's off. Something's wrong. But do you forgive him for that? Does he get a buy? I, I, when, I, when I was thinking about it, I think you see some of these new age uh, judges. They say, you know, this poor kid, he grew up in a terrible house. He grew up in a terrible neighborhood. He went to a terrible school. What did you expect him to learn? So when he killed somebody, so what do we do? You still send him to jail. Or we say, no, forgive him. Don't send him to jail. So there's a difference in how earthly court judges and a heavenly court judges. It says that <clears throat> there was something about Eli- Eliphaz that he still had the influence of Yitzchak on him. We learn from Rashi that when he got to Yaakov and he was ready to kill him, he wanted to see if there was another way around. Can I still respect my father? And kill my uncle, even though it's ridiculous. He wanted to see if there was a way around. And he asks Yaakov, what do I do? And it was Yaakov who said to him, here's what you could do. Take everything. It's as if I'm dead. You respect your father and you kill me. 
So Yaakov understood he had to deal with him in a little different way than you would deal with who we're going to call a normal person. But imagine, imagine if a guy really thinks that murder is nothing, how hard it would be for him to not murder. And what credit does he deserve? So it says, Rabbi Yochanan says in the Gemara, in, uh, he, says, he says, Hashem does not withhold reward for any creature. He says, even the reward for refined speech. Meaning anything that you do in this life, you get a reward for. Accordingly, he says, we have to identify where and how Hashem rewards Eliphaz for sparing the life of Yaakov. Where? When do we hear of Eliphaz again? We have Eliphaz's name appear a number of times as Aluf Esav, Eliphaz is his oldest one, father of Amalek, etc., etc. But where else do we see? Rashi says that we see when we have the story of Iyov that among the colleagues of Iyov, of Job, who responded to Iyov and to his complaints regarding his suffering was a man who was called Eliphaz HaTemani. Rashi over there writes, even though we're a few hundred years in the future, right? This Eliphaz is the same Eliphaz. Hashem granted Eliphaz a long, long life. Not only that, Rashi writes, Eliphaz was the son of Esav, and because he grew up under the influence of Yitzhak, he merited that the Shekhinah should rest upon him. Apparently, Rashi's comments coincide with the statement in the Gemara, that Eliphaz, not only did he live for a long time, but the Gemara says he was one of the seven Nevi'im of the Goyim, the seven prophets of the, of the nations, who the Shekhinah rested upon, because he had absorbed some of the Kiddushah of Yitzchak, his grandfather, and as a result, he chose not to listen to his father and not to kill Yaakov. Go further. But he still took something. Ah, but why did he take it? Did he really want it? Or did he only take it? To assuage the father's... Because that's what Yaakov told him to do. Maybe. He goes further because this is the most unbelievable part. He says, Notwithstanding, let's explore the wonders of Hashem, who orchestrates everything that happens to the Neshamot from generation to generation says that to rectify the neshamot and provide each neshama with the reward that's due that neshama. Chazal tell us a fascinating story regarding a person named Unkulus. Now we have a mitzvah every week to read Shnayim Mikra Ve'echad Targum. What is that? We have to read the parasha of the week twice and once we have to read the Targum. The Targum is the original translation that's written in Aramaic by a man named Unculus. Who was Unculus? Unculus was the nephew of the Roman Caesar Hadrian. Hadrian Yemach Shemot was the one who cut off the top of the of the of the mount of the of the Harabayit. He destroyed the mountain itself and created a plateau. And this man, 
Unculus, who was the nephew of Caesar. Now just imagine what that means, you know, really a prince. He wanted to convert, which was not such an unusual thing in that time, because it appears that almost 10% of the Roman Empire could have been Jewish. So many people converted. If the Roman Empire was 10 million or so, there were a million or so Jews in there. So what, is the, what does he do? What does the Gemara tell us? Unculus uses sorcery, and he raises his great uncle, Caesar, Titus, Titus, and he raises him from the dead. And he asks him, great, great uncle, you're in the future world. Who is important in the future world? And it says that Titus replies that Israel are important. So Unculus says to his great, great uncle, should I join them? Should I convert? Should I become Jewish? And Titus replied that they have many mitzvot and you won't be able to follow them. Instead, what does Titus tell him? Titus tell him? He tells him, torment B'nai Israel, and those who torment them, the world will love them and they'll become a leader in the world. He says, you can be the next Caesar. What's the secret to being Caesar? Torment the Jews. Grab your pitchforks, you know, go after the Jews. <clears throat> and he quotes Echa, her tormentors have become leaders. All those who torment B'nai Israel become leaders. In the Sefer Gilgul Neshamot, authored by the Ramah of Pano, he writes that the convert Unculus is an Ibur of the soul of Eliphaz, the son of Esav. What is he saying? This guy Eliphaz, who's the son of Esav and the father of Amalek, comes back as Unculus. Why? How? Why would he deserve such a thing? Who did not want to kill Yaakov as his father commanded him. He took his gold and he left his body. And it's Eliphaz is really God of gold. My God is Paz's of gold. He says also he sought advice from Titus when he went to convert. He told him to go and torment them. Because Titus is Esav. And Esav's head rests with Yitzhak. It says that the Gilgul, Esav, comes back as Titus. Titus is the one who destroys the Ben HaMikdash. He says, here we learn an unbelievable fact. As a result of not listening to Esav's command to kill Yaakov, Eliphaz merits to reincarnate into Unculus, who did not heed the advice of the wicked Titus, who in fact was Esav. So he doesn't, so, so he says that Eliphaz doesn't listen to Esav, comes back as Unculus, who doesn't listen to Titus, who is Esav. He says that instead he converted and was privileged to learn the Torah from Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua and to translate the entire Torah. This is explained in the Gemara as follows. The Targum of the Torah was composed by Unculus the Ger, who learned it from Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua. Now we could explain how Unculus, the son of Esav, merited such a great reward. 
reincarnating into Unkulus who interprets the entire Torah and you read him every single week everyone has to read him every week and learn the Torah from him how? says the Mishnah in Pirkavot Al Shilosha Devarim Ha'olam Omer on three pillars the world exists Al HaTorah on the Torah Ve'al HaAvodah Ve'al Gimilut Chasadim he says the world rests on three pillars the practice of kind deeds. This is Abraham Avinu. He does kindness. He does gemilut chasadim. Avodah. Avodah relates to sacrifices. This relates to Yitzchak Avinu. He says, and the third one is Al HaTorah. And this relates to who? Yaakov Avinu, who's Yoshev Ohalim, who dwells in the tents. And that's what he's considered. He's the one who represents the Torah. Rashi explains that these, this is a reference to the Ohalim, the Yoshev Ohalim, the tents of Shem and Ever, that he goes and he studies in. He says, it says, <clears throat> what did he do for 14 years? He learned in Shem and Ever, the first time he lies down, was in the beginning of this week's parasha, when he lies down and he has the dream. Meaning for 14 years, the only place he slept was he was learning, closed his eyes, woke up, continued to learn. They didn't lay in a bed. But what happened? What was what, what, his wealth when he was in, in yeshiva? He was in storage? Yeah, yeah, must have been in storage. Now, this enlightens us and allows us to rejoice. Maybe no, maybe he had the wealth and then he went back home, says goodbye, and then he went. Oh, okay. You know? Right? He could have, after he went to Sheminever, he could have gone back to Yitzhak before he went to Haran. Why, we don't know that. So. Or he could have had the, 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 kept the jewels in the safe deposit box at the, at the yeshiva. So now we can understand. <laughs> Eliphaz is Esav's firstborn. He puts his life at risk by not obeying his father to kill Yaakov. Because Esav could have become so angry at him that what would he do? Off with your head. And because he did not obey his father, he allowed the pillar of Torah... To remain alive. So Yaakov exists because Eliphaz did not listen to Esav. He knew that Esav was a murderer. He knew that Esav was liable to kill him in a fit of anger for failing to obey his command. Therefore, Midah Keneged Midah, Eliphaz merited reincarnating into Unculus the Ger, who translated the entire Torah just as it was given over to Moshe at Har Sinai. Through the generations, it had been forgotten until Unculus restored it for Israel. So he really became a partner. Became a partner with, with, with Yaakov Avinu. He says, After Unculus used sorcery to raise the spirit of Titus from the dead and seek his advice, whether he should convert or not, the Gemara says, he consulted other spirits. He brought up Bil'am. He asked Bil'am a whole bunch of questions. Then he brought up Yeshu. He asked Yeshu all kinds of questions. He says he's decided to, re- to, to convert. Notwithstanding, he was afraid that what his uncle was going to do. His uncle was the Caesar. His uncle hated the Jews. He was afraid that his uncle is going to say something. So he had to figure out how to outwit his uncle. Here's how the Midrash Tanhuma recounts the story of Akilas, otherwise known as Unkulos the Ger. Says the Gemara. The Midrash, sorry, on Mishpatim. Akilas, the nephew of Hadrian, wished to convert. 
he feared his uncle's reaction, so he told him that he was going to go into business. The uncle responded that if he needed money, come to me. If you need money for business loan, I'll give you. I'm the emperor. The nephew said he wanted to go out to the world first and see how everything works. He says, but I want your advice on how to proceed. So the uncle said, listen, the way to make money in the world is to seek out a depreciated business, something that looks like it doesn't have value, but really has value. And eventually the value will be recognized and you'll make a lot of money. Go find something that's not, looks like it's not value, but is, and buy it. And then you'll be able to sell it for plenty. It says, Akilas went to Eretz Yisrael. He began to learn Torah. He was noticed by Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua. They saw a change in his facial appearance. They said to one another that Akilas is obviously learning Torah. When he came to learn with them, he began asking them many questions, which they answered. When he returned to his uncle Hadrian, the uncle inquired as to the change in his facial appearance. I figured it was because your business failed or perhaps someone was causing you problems, maybe a little depressed. Uncle said, no, no one would touch me. No one would bother me. No one would say a word to me because they know that I'm your nephew. Who's going to mess with the nephew of the king? So Hadrian said, so what changed? Uncle said, because I've been learning Torah. He admitted to his uncle. And he says, furthermore, I had a brit milah. I'm circumcised. Hadrian said, and who told you to do this? Who, who gave you this advice? Who allowed you to do this? So Uncle said, Uncle, I came to you and I listened to your advice. He said, what do you mean? When? Uncle said, when I told you that I wanted to engage in business, you told me to get involved in a business that is currently out of favor for it eventually would become valuable. I looked at all the nations in the world and I said, who's the least favored in the world? Yisrael. And I said, they're surely destined to rise as the prophet Yishayahu says, if we analyze the Midrash, we find something fascinating. Uncle is converted based on the advice of Hadrian, his uncle, who said, find something depreciated, devalued, engage in it, it'll eventually rise and be profitable. This advice led him to convert. He says, no other nation in the land is as downtrodden as Israel. They are surely destined to rise, for Hashem subjects Israel in Galut to the ordeal of poverty. By fulfilling the precepts of the Torah in a state of poverty, eventually they're going to have wealth. He says, thus Uncle is converted and, they, and he joined B'nai Israel. This parallels the situation of Eliphaz very nicely. He endangered his life by not killing Yaakov. Yet he still wanted to comply with the mitzvah of Kivud Av. So he confiscated the possessions of Yaakov. As a result, Yaakov was forced to fulfill the precepts of the Torah while he was in poverty. By withstanding the ordeal of poverty, he was able to eventually reach the level of, of being tested in wealth. He says the same way, he says, Eliphaz reincarnated into Unculus the Ger, who by converting and associating himself with Israel was subject to the or ordeal of poverty in Galut, Yet he did so knowing that eventually he will rise up and he will, will be part of, of the Geulah. 
So just the closing idea of this was interesting. So, so I said so many of the rabbis looked at Eliphaz with such negativity. And say he's just a fool, you know, one or the other. But I said that, you know, you can't judge a person until you stand in their shoes. That's what Hillel says in Pekavot. There's an American saying that says, you can't judge a person until you walk a mile in their shoes. They say it was from American Indians. I think it's really from Pekavot they took it. It says they really took it from Hillel. What does that mean? If you can't judge a person until you're standing in their shoes, you could really never judge a person. Because you never really could stand in someone else's shoes. You really never could understand exactly where they're from, where they came from. So it means that really a person shouldn't be going out and judging. But on a level of Hashem judging, if we look at this ladder, there's this spiritual ladder that's from here to here. The problem is if I start to judge someone like Eliphaz, I say, look at this guy. But how could I judge him? I didn't grow up in Esav's house. I wasn't blessed that Amalek should be my child. How could I judge him? How could I be him? How could I even feel anything he feels? We each are born on this spiritual ladder. Some of us have the advantage of growing up in an observant home, of having loving parents, of having enough to be able to buy everything and go to the proper schools and go to the right synagogue and live in the right community and marry the right person because I'm blessed with everything. So we're here on that ladder. And then you have the person who grows up in a crazy house with nothing and doesn't find anything until they find it on their own until some point in their life. Well, they're born on this lowest part of the ladder. So can I compare for even a minute a person who's born on that level to the person who's born on that level? It's totally unfair. Because in heaven, there's a curve to the test. You know, it's a, it's, it, it can't be judged the same way. So my rabbi always used to say, you can never judge a person by where he is on the ladder. You can only judge a person by which direction he's headed. We can never judge. You see from here that if we learn the story of Eliphaz, almost immediately we're going to judge Eliphaz and say, what a loony. He's deciding whether he should respect or kill. What kind of question is it? What's meant for this guy? He's the worst you could be. He's the son of Esav, the father of Amalek. Throw him in the garbage. But look at heaven. They're judging him on where he's born on that ladder and what he did with what he had. And they're rewarding him for that. And look at the reward that he gets. The long life. Prophecy. And then to come back as Unkelus to be able to teach the Torah to everyone. Think for a second. If that's his reward for what? For not killing. He still walked away with the money then, right? (laughs) For not killing. Imagine what's out there for someone who does the right thing. Each of us has a challenge to go against our nature. That's what it's all about. The challenge of going against your nature. The whole thing with the Akedah was, it wasn't, people killed their children and offered them to, 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 to they, they had the, we said they had, they had, the statue had a big belly that they put the kids in to burn. They did it all the time. It wasn't a test to see if it would sacrifice his son. 
The test was the nature of Abraham was to do good, to do kindness. Can he overcome his nature and send Yishmael away? Could he overcome his nature and take his son to offer him and kill him as a sacrifice? It's a test to go against your nature. The test of Yitzchak is a test to go against his nature. And that's what we see where he's with Esav. The test of Yaakov is also to go against his nature. Because what's the nature of Yaakov? Yaakov is emet. Yaakov is truth. And what's his test? Can you go against your nature and take the blessing even in a little tricky way? Can you go against your nature and deal with Laban in a different way? Can you go against your nature? And if the nature of Eliphaz was to kill, and he overcomes his nature not to kill, look at his reward. So all of us have to look, what is my nature? What am I going and doing? And then I have to see, what am I doing? What am I doing? What is my nature? What do I have to do to overcome that nature? The reason I'm here in this world is one reason, and only one reason. To overcome that which is the most difficult thing for me to overcome. That's what's my chest in the world. People stand in line to go to the Mikubal to ask him the question. But the question's an answer we all know. What do I find the most difficult thing in my life to overcome? That's what I'm here to fix. We see that Eliphaz is able to overcome murder. And for that, he's given such incredible reward. So whatever we're given the task to do, we should do whatever we can to overcome. And we should know that just like that reward awaited him for that, imagine the reward that awaits the, the rest of us. Yeah. The idea that Onkelos is Gilgul, Elifa, 